0: Boland back there. I know it may be slightly disorienting to have the sermon just after the first reading, but every time I preach, I say a prayer of. What, do, what does the Holy Spirit want the people of God to hear from these texts on this occasion? And as the week progressed and my prayers continued, it was laid on me that this as little time and as few words as possible needed to pass between the hearing that Randy just read for us and the reflection and expounding that is my honor and responsibility to take on. Our reading from Acts today presents us with two supporting characters who are trapped in a system not of their own making. I'm always a little bothered by the first part of the story where Paul and Silas eventually cast out the spirit from the enslaved girl merely because they are annoyed by her, even though the spirit was causing her to say that they proclaim a way of salvation. And I'm a little bothered that they free her from being possessed, but do nothing about her being a possession. And we don't know if her enslavers freed her after that because she couldn't make them any more money, or if they continued to find a way to exploit her. It's a scene like this that helps us understand why Howard Thurman, the great mystic and prophet of the early 20th century, told the story of how his grandmother, herself born into slavery, refused to read Paul's letters in the New Testament because there were so many pro-slavery people in her early life who used his words to support their cause. Paul and Silas's actions land them in jail because they are preaching a gospel that is contrary to the Roman way. And they don't just go in the jail, they go in the innermost cell of the jail, they are shackled to the wall. An earthquake shakes the doors open and unfastens the chains. The jailer comes running in, the jailer who has done everything he is supposed to do. And expecting to find that the prisoners have escaped, he prepares to end his own life, because he has, in the eyes of the empire, failed. And there's some precedent for this a few chapters earlier in the book of Acts when Peter also has a miraculous escape from jail and Herod has the guards killed. The jailer is so trapped in this system that he sees only one option for this perceived failure. So he asks, what must I do to be saved? The Common English Bible translates this as, what must I do to be rescued? And it begs the question, saved or rescued from what? With his sword in his hand, he was probably thinking about being saved from the wrath and embarrassment of whatever his bosses would have said to him after the prisoners got out. What must I do to be saved? In that moment, it is a personal question in search of a personal answer. But as he follows Paul and Silas and his whole house is baptized and welcomed as followers of Jesus, we realize that it is a personal question with a communal answer. Throughout the stories of the New Testament and particularly in the book of Acts, people coming to follow Jesus do so in groups often in households, and those households were far bigger than just the nuclear family. The question asked by the unnamed but forever remembered jailer is is unique only in its immediacy. If we were to all ask that question, we should not forget that the answer has a ripple effect for all those around us, those we know and, and those we don't. So, in one way, those who enslaved the girl at the beginning of the story were right. The gospel subverts the oppressive order. When we ask, what must I do to be saved, we must be extremely aware that our small lives are swept up into the greater drama of God's story. One of the most flawed narratives of our culture, one of the most flawed pieces of our history, is the idea of rugged individualism. The idea that we can just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. That if we work hard enough, anything is possible. That we all live in some Horatio Alger novel from the 19th century. None of it is true. Oh sure, there are feel-good stories of people who started with very little and had everything they needed. Maybe they even grew up to be famous. But as Thurgood Marshall once said, None of us got where we are by solely pulling up ourselves by our bootstraps. We got here because somebody, a parent, a teacher, an Ivy League crony, maybe a few nuns, bent down and helped us pick up our boots. Even the story of Hewlett-Packard computers starting in a garage is a fantasy. There are millions of people in this country, thousands in our own community, who work their tails off. And still barely have two dimes to rub together. So the question is not one of I, but of we. What must we do to be saved? Saved from the very things that are ripping us apart at the seams. The things that destroy us and our futures. The oppressions, the addictions, the fascinations, the hopelessness. Like both the jailer and the girl in our Acts lesson, what bondage do we need to be loosed from where do we need to let the gospel of jesus christ subvert that which oppresses our world and to be clear the we is our community our nation it's not about one person at a time when moses acts as god's agent in egypt it's not merely pharaoh in his inner circle who suffer it's all the egyptians When Jonah goes to Nineveh, he's not only calling on the king to repent, he calls on the whole city-state. When we read the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures, they don't call out individuals. It's the whole nation that is held accountable. It's the whole nation that suffers for their sins. The sins of those in leadership who put their own needs and wants ahead of the good of the people, ahead of the way that God has called them to live. Those whom God holds most accountable are those who have the power to do something and choose not to. Those who have the power to say and act and then don't, especially if they choose not to as a means of maintaining their own power. Sodom and Gomorrah are obliterated for their lack of hospitality to strangers, which was one of the earliest commandments in the book of Genesis. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah are punished, indeed sent into exile, because those in power kept making themselves richer and the poor poorer. That is what they needed salvation from. That is what Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets preached against. And I dare say, we are living in the same song, different verse. There are swaths of people more in love with their power and influence than with the betterment of humanity. There are swaths of people who are so afraid of other humans, created in the image of God just like them, but their skin is darker than theirs, so they open fire at a church in Charleston, or a Walmart in El Paso, or a grocery store in Buffalo. There are people who have no issue with civilians having a weapon of war, including body armor, are you kidding me? So they are able to walk into a school in Michigan or Texas or a Waffle House in Tennessee, try to name a state where this hasn't happened. And then we have to think that we have to live with the sacrifice of moviegoers and shoppers and schoolchildren to a hail of gunfire. Those who are ripped apart are saved from the lifetime of trauma that the survivors endure. And in more than one situation, it could have been prevented. I've been thinking all week also about how we celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow. It's a tradition of several origins, including, including recently freed slaves in Charleston, South Carolina, who wanted to honor the dead just a month or so after the Civil War ended. The tradition picked up traction after World War I, including having a specific day of, the, of May. May 30th was the original date for Memorial Day. And it was after World War II that it became the last Monday in May. It's a day when we honor those in our military who died in the line of duty. Many of you in this room know at least one person in that category. It's not just a day for cookouts and beach trips and mattress sales. We hold that those who died in combat did so defending the American ideal, defending American freedom. Is this what they died for? Is this the freedom they fought for? At what point do we say enough? Because I'm not willing to live with the sacrifice of anyone to a false god. I'm not willing for that to become our reality. Because under no circumstance, under no reading of scripture, do I believe that that is the way of Jesus. Humanity is a collective. and We rise and we fall together. Our salvation is tied to one another, and it is a group project. And yes, there are some people in the group project who are more talented than others. Some have more skills than others. But none of us can depend on that one kid to carry us through. And none of us can be that one kid who sits back and lets everyone else do the work. What must we do to be saved? I tend to get frustrated with myself when I look back over what I've written in a sermon and I have more questions than I have answers. And then I remember that none of us are alone. Humanity is a collective. Our salvation is a collective. In just a few moments, we will hear the gospel proclaimed right here from the top of the steps. We will hear what's known as the farewell discourse in John's gospel, where Jesus prays for his followers, for all his people to be one. What must we do to make that happen? What what must we do to live into the call of a gospel that subverts unjust systems and turns the world right-side up. I took comfort this week in a prayer several of my colleagues shared around, an unknown origin, but one that almost sounds like it's the opposite of the prayer of St. Francis and may have been inspired by the prayer attributed to Sir Francis Drake. Lord, make me a channel of disturbance— Where there is apathy, let me provoke. Where there is compliance, let me bring questioning. Where there is silence, may I be a voice. Where there is too much comfort and too little action, grant disruption. Where there are doors closed and hearts locked, grant the willingness to listen. When laws dictate and pain is overlooked, When tradition speaks louder than need, grant that I may seek rather to do justice than to talk about it. Disturb us, O Lord, to be with as well as for the alienated, to love the unlovable as well as the lovely. Lord, make me a channel of disturbance.